Hello and welcome to the series finale of Slate's Game of Thrones podcast. I cannot believe we've made it this far. The fan theories and outrage on the internet have been wild. Who will survive? Who will be king at the end? So I am pleased to note that I, Dan Coyce, a writer and editor at Slate, have been crowned the host of the Game of Thrones finale (laughs) podcast after a summit of all the lords and ladies of Slate. I'm the one who made it. I'm the king that was promised. Joining me today on the Game of Thrones podcast are Isaac Butler, a Slate contributor and co-author of the World Only Spins Forward. Hi, Isaac. Hey, how's it going, Dan? Good. Uh, And Rebecca Onion, straight from Ohio, a Slate staff writer. Hi, Rebecca. I still think Sansa should have got it. (laughs) (laughs) We'll discuss. Well, so which one of us? Which one of us is talking to the mic with a not fully disguised plastic water bottle by our leg, like Sam Uh-oh. was in the in the council? <laughs> yeah. Did you get? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just have a Starbucks cup. I'm good. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> um, I actually have a huge, um, like the largest size McDonald's Diet Coke, which actually would have been the perfect thing to appear in some episode. <laughs> this season. I want someone to have like I want someone to have like a strudel from Dunkin' Donuts or something. Right. Uh, yeah. Why was Sam Tarley just eating a croissant? <laughs> um, all right. So. Season eight, episode six, The Iron Throne. I want to start by asking you guys, what were your expectations for this episode going in? And by that, I mean not only like um, who did you think would win the Game of Thrones, but also like what did you think the episode would accomplish for the viewer? Let's start with you, Isaac. Uh, that's that's interesting. I, I actually tried pretty hard to have as few expectations on that that front as possible. I felt like there were two different directions they could have possibly gone in. One was sort of outright tragedy, regardless of who's sitting on the Iron Throne. You know, winter is here. There's not enough food. Westeros is totally screwed. There are no institutions. There's to some extent no society. Like, they're just kind of, things are bad, yo. Right? I, I thought that was one direction that they could go in. And then another direction is the one they 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 wound up going in which has to do with you know how do you rebuild in the aftermath of a, a huge civil war and all of these kinds of uh, cataclysms but I definitely expected if they went that second route that it would be a little darker than the episode wound up being and I was you know I wished Sansa would sit on the Iron Throne but I, I didn't think that that would actually uh, happen I guess part of me was like maybe there's no one on the throne or maybe there's like I, I don't know what system is left when all of this is over um, so that's sort of where 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 I was at with it before um, I watched it how about you Rebecca well, I I feel like my psychology is such that I like to prepare to be like horrified and sad about things because then I feel like I'm protecting myself against being horrified and sad. So I actually I think I saw Isaac's tweet saying, "What if the end is a tragedy?" And so I sort of thought that maybe that would be what would happen. That something would happen that I wouldn't like. Like uh, Danny would be able to successfully exert control or Cersei would turn out to be alive, which was another thing that I didn't even consider until about Thursday of last week. And then all of a sudden I heard people theorizing about it and became convinced that maybe that would be what would happen. And so I sort of thought that it was going to end with something demonstrating the idea that the strong survive, as Braun memorably put it in his uh, his argument that uh, we didn't have to worry about sewers at the, uh, at the small council meeting. But yeah, I, I was I was prepared to be sort of horrified, um, and clearly I was not. Yeah, well, that's <clears throat> setting your expectations low is uh, is generally a good move in life and in art. Mm-hmm. Um, it has its downsides. <laughs> yeah, my expectations were pretty basic. Uh, like I expected the show would somehow figure out who was going to rule Westeros and that it would represent some kind of shift, either like a darker shift, but more likely I thought like a slightly lighter shift, like a move towards like rationality as we, a modern audience Mm -hmm. understands it. Um, I expected that there would be like one, like something twisty, something surprising would happen. I expected that there would be good beats for a bunch of the characters we liked. I expected that a lot of it would be like very silly. Uh, and <laughs> my expectations were 
richly rewarded, I thought. <laughs> Did you um, expect it to turn into a lengthy referendum on the nature of storytelling? Uh, I did not, but I guess I probably should have, man. Fucking storytellers love talking about storytelling. Right? Uh, Yep. Um, So the the opinion on this episode, on my part of online at least, has been just viciously negative. Like people seem unbelievably disappointed and depressed and filled with angst at the time that they've given to the show and that it did not reward them in the end. Uh, You two seem less angsty and less disappointed. Would that be an accurate summation of your feelings about this? Yes. Yeah. I think that's fair to say. I don't, I think I, in order to feel angsty and disappointed, I would have to have had confidence up until now that it was going to be good. And I think I've sort of lost that confidence a while ago with a lot of people seem to have right although it is interesting that even the people who have explicitly said they lost confidence in the show still found a way to be disappointed i know i know yeah i i feel like as with a lot of things this season there's there's two different things going on right there is the choices they've made about the story and the execution of those choices right and people seem to be angry about both of those things in this finale Mm -hmm. for the most part I would say that my complaints or my issues are like more with the uh, execution on a writing level of some of the choices, but I was not myself like upset by those those choices themselves. You know, hmm. it, the the one that puzzled me was that Jon Snow survived long enough to be sent to the wall, and that Grey Worm didn't just kill him on the spot. Right? Like, like there's a couple things in there that seemed a bit like the chess pieces are being forced a little too heavy-handedly. But for the most part, I felt like, okay, this seems like an ending for this world that does that thing of wrapping some of it up while making it feel like the world is continuing. Even if I felt like occasionally the writing was clunky or as you put it, Dan, uh, um, you know, goofy. So uh, I feel like in the end, I feel basically positive toward this final episode. Like I, I think I liked Mm -hmm. it in this Ted talk. I will explain why I (laughs) think that it was basically good, but let's sort of talk our way through this episode. Um, The episode is, uh, as several previous episodes have been this season, is basically split in half. Um, The first half of the episode, I think, is, which I'm thinking of as the Ash half, uh, is about Mm -hmm. Tyrion convincing Jon to kill Daenerys. um, And then Jon committing the act. Uh, And then the second half, which I'm thinking of as one month later, uh, is Tyrion convincing (laughs) the lords to make Bran the king. Um, but so let's start with the ash half. So, um, yeah. So that long scene between Tyrion and John um, in Tyrion's cell after Tyrion confronts Daenerys uh, and is arrested seemed to me to be not only about convincing John, but about convincing us, right? Convincing the members of the mm-hmm. audience who are still dubious on this question or who are still on Team Daenerys. Uh, or who still think that the idea of Daenerys not assuming the throne would be objectionable, it's trying to make the case to them that the future of Westeros is not in good hands, both through Tyrion's sort of lecture to Jon and also through Daenerys' actions, through the speech that she gives uh, all her yeah, troops speech. about how they are now now that they've destroyed King's Landing, they're going to go from Lannisport to Carth and uh, Dorn to Winterfell and I guess lay waste to everything. And uh, it seemed like, you know, people have have expressed their concerns about Game of Thrones, like making a case against Daenerys. Here they're explicitly making a case against Daenerys in a way that maybe the creators could not have anticipated would feel so familiar to us as we were watching it. Like it felt like we were essentially watching like a vigorous take that someone wrote for the internet about the accelerating pace of Daenerys' tyranny. But what did you guys think of the construction of this first half and specifically about that big showcase Tyrion John scene in the cell? I feel like the Daenerys speech, which I think uh, in Willa Paskin's review of this episode, she said that it visually quoted Lenny Riefenstahl, which seems right to me. Daenerys' speech to the Unsullied and the Dothraki, which is delivered entirely in, is that Larian? 
I'm not sure what she's speaking, but she's... I can't remember which language is which. Maybe first speaking in a Dothraki language and then speaking in Valerian to the Unsullied. It was fully scary to see. Um, but there's also this way that there's, like, a... I felt like the way that it was constructed was the people pushing the show to have the viewers feel like it seemed like a foreign horde in a way that it hadn't seemed in a while. <laughs> like there was this sort of feeling that it's not just that Daenerys has gone bad, it's that she has all of these people from out of town who she is sort of inciting to basically sort of like sack Westeros in a way. And I feel like that way of trying to convince the viewers that there was something very wrong going on. I don't know. In a way, it's, it's supposed to, uh, you know, obviously it's supposed to make the case that Daenerys is, has, has gone completely bad, but it also pulled on these sort of like threads of the narrative that have to do with the difference between Westeros and the rest of the world um, in this interesting and maybe troubling way to me. And I found myself terrified by that, but also kind of like, oh, wait, they were going to play on this to make us scared of her also? <laughs> like, this is, this is a lot. And then, you know, but I, as a fundamentally, you know, I kind of have to find myself going along with what they're wanting us to think and think, yeah, yeah, she does need to die. Like, this is too much. This is like, like, she can't go to, you know, don't go to Winterfell. Oh, no, that's where, you know, the people that we really like are. Um, so, you know, there's, in that way, it's sort of like a, you know, a successful scare. Um, and then I think that John and Tyrion seen one on too long, but I think everyone thinks that. I don't think that. You don't think that? Okay. No, but Isaac, go ahead. Well, I, I definitely, I want to say, first of all, I just had in my notes, you know, when they show the, the flag, the, the Targaryen Daenerys's flag, as mm-hmm. they're like walking on the steps, was like, you know, the flag should have been a tip off. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know, it's like the scariest goddamn flag I've ever seen in my life. Anyway, I, I am someone yeah. who for years has been saying like Daenerys is a want to be tyrant she only knows how to dominate she doesn't know how to govern the books are pretty clear about this the show is getting gradually clearer and clearer about it etc i agree with you rebecca i was actually like deeply troubled there's a series of what are basically like pov shots from john and Arya staring at the dothraki as they kind of whoop Mm -hmm. and and riot around on their Horses, And while I both think that from those characters perspective, the the idea of a foreign army coming in and, and, and occupying their, their country is probably deeply upsetting. Um, the way it was filmed and the number of those shots was upsetting for, yeah. to me for other reasons. I was sort of like, oh, like this feels like you're making me scared of this. You're trying to make me scared of this racial other. And I, I, I was not a huge go. fan you of that. It. Uh, yeah. it has gone from being about the what the characters are afraid of to you making me afraid of this too. And, and, you know, there's been enough other white panic issues on the show that I, I, I was disinclined in that moment to give it the, the benefit of the doubt in ter- in terms of the John and Tyrion scene. I feel like over the past couple seasons, or I guess it's one season split in half, right? The writing has gotten progressively more, didactic and obvious and it feels to me like a fairly clear response to reading the discourse around the show on social media that it just always feels to me like the writers feel like they need to spell things out because they follow what happens in the conversation if they don't do it so Tyrion winds up having to make this extremely lengthy case even though now that we've Mm -hmm. already seen the destruction of King's Landing and Daenerys's speech we the viewer don't necessarily need it anymore Tyrion has to make this extremely lengthy case to John about it and to have this kind of ethical exegesis about what's going on on the show, that utopianism is going to lead to genocide no matter what. (laughs) That said, you know, I I enjoyed these two characters who have had this huge journey since the first season, having like a lengthy moment so that we can see how they have and have not changed, you know, at this point. And there were several moments in that scene that I was really interested in. I loved when Tyrion asked John, you know, sort of cynically, you know, like you've you've died. What's it like? And John's like, sorry, there's there's nothing afterwards. Or you know, that discussion about love being the death of duty. Um, you know, there's there's moments in it that I that I really liked. Uh, but I do feel like there is this kind of like we have to explain this to the audience because if you follow the conversation around the show, clearly some people aren't getting it. 
I agree that we probably did not need as much convincing as the show seems to believe that we need, but I mm-hmm. thought that John needs that much convincing. Like the thing that Tyrion is asking mm-hmm. John to do is to betray essentially the person he has made himself his entire life, right? A man of right. honor who is always honest, who never lies and who always does the right thing. And like, that's a big ask. And I didn't really mind that it took Tyrion a long time to get John there. And that John wasn't even necessarily there, even as he was approaching the door, that there was another beat that Tyrion needed to hit about Winterfell. And that then there were <laughs> things that John needed to check, sort of check against what Tyrion was saying in his conversation with Daenerys. Like I, I bought that. You know, and definitely, mm-hmm. you know, there were aspects of that conversation that were silly, like everything else in this episode. <laughs> and it definitely was long, but I'm not going to argue with the show, like having a long, thoughtful conversation between two characters who I really like, who are right. both played by pretty good actors who are doing interesting stuff in that scene. Like that was, that's what I want out of a show like this. And so that didn't bother me at all. One thing that I thought was really interesting about that conversation from the perspective of thinking about the sort of social media commentary that swirled around this, notably absent from that conversation was any mad Targaryen talk, hmm. right? There was nothing in there mm-hmm. about her, about how she is going to burn everything down and how one out of every two Targaryens is evil. <laughs> it was more about Tyrion trying to convince John that she's so convinced that she is the savior that, as Tyrion says, wouldn't you kill anyone who got in your way if you thought you were the only thing that could bring a good world to everyone? And then hearing that echoed later in the conversation between John and Daenerys when he asks, how will we know that the that the world we make is good? And she says, because I know what's good. Yeah. Like that worked for me. And so, you Mm -hmm. you know, I think that your guys' observations about the extremely racist connotations of the rally uh, are right on. And like the symbolism of that rally and the kind of mixed historical references that they were just like willy nilly tossing around uh, are Mm -hmm. somewhat like semi insane. But doesn't make me feel great about Confederate. I'm just going to say. Well, yeah. that's oh never, that's never, <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, but like the journey that John has to take in this episode is a big journey and yes. much to my surprise, I basically bought it. So like just mm. in succeeding in that, I feel like this episode has cleared a huge hurdle that I didn't really anticipate it would, the show would be able to successfully clear. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. Um, although I do want to, I think we should talk about whether John is leaving permanently at the end of the episode, because I think that changes how we view his um, arc. But an- another thing that I also appreciated in Danny's speech about uh, not the public speech, but her monologue to John about, you know, it was when she talks about um, Cersei using the innocence of the people of King's Landing as a weapon against her, against Danny, because that one of the things that I've appreciated about this, these past couple episodes is that there is this kind of like consistent critique of essentially like our own war policy that's built into it. And that that was, I remember, I mean, all the time in the Bush years and since you would hear, you know, Oh, well, you know, Al Qaeda knows to move innocent people, you know, in front of where they're going to store their weapons so we won't bomb it. So they're like, we still have to bomb it. You know what I mean? Or, you know, that argument was made about the the Gaza aerial bombardment in 2009 and stuff like that. And so an- another thing that I appreciated about this episode was like hearing those arguments that are arguments that are in our discourse that I, I find, you know, make, deeply upsetting to hear Daenerys saying them was actually, I think, a pretty wild thing that the show has not gotten enough credit for. Yeah, I agree. And it's interesting, I mean, not to get too, like, inside-outside about it, but it's interesting to be having that conversation about this show in the same week that the president is probably going to end by pardoning uh, war criminals. Right. Yeah, Donald Trump definitely pardons Grey Worm, right? Yes. Oh, 100%. Donald Trump is like, be my secretary of defense. I need one. (laughs) 
<laughs> Grey Worm was just following orders, man. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So John finally does it. John finally lies to someone's face convincingly. Um, he knifes Daenerys. Drogon shows up and melts the throne. Uh, Weirdly. And then, I know. And then carries <laughs> Daenerys away. So that scene was like surprising and well handled and operatic and insane. And I really liked it. What'd you guys think of <laughs> the death of Daenerys? Ooh, I like that you called it operatic. I feel like that's helpful <laughs> to think about it. Um, yeah, I really liked it. I, I felt like the, the dro- um, Drogon melting the throne was like a hard pill to swallow. But when I swallowed it, I was like, okay, this is fine. Yeah, I mean, there's so a hard pill because... Oh, just that I don't feel like I know enough about what dragons' motivations are or what they <laughs> oh. like, what they know or don't know about the human world. Right. Like, does he does he know that this is the throne that she wanted? If he knows that, what else did he know? Right. Like, that's this a lot. This chair is ugly. Yeah. <laughs> right? Doesn't it is match. good that dragons understand, like, symbolism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was totally fine with Danny and John in the throne and Alice scene. I just, I feel like... Again, I don't understand why John survives that scene. Like, I don't understand why John's mm. alive in the second half of this episode exactly. You mean uh, because you thought Drogon should have killed him? I, I think there's a whole bunch of different ways it could have gone. Drogon could have killed him and he could have been standing in front of the throne and then the throne melts too. I don't know. Like, Grey Worm could have come in and stabbed him. Like, I just, I actually yep. do not understand having made this choice why either from a character perspective or a world perspective or a thematic perspective, there's no, I do not understand why he survives to the second half of the episode. Okay. Here are some thoughts on that. Drogon isn't going to kill him because he's a Targaryen. Right. I was going to say it's because he's a Targaryen, right? Yeah. Yeah. So he's so angry. He's like, I will just melt the closest piece of furniture to you. Uh, Yeah. I'll buy that. I almost thought he might climb on his back or something. Like I sort of was like, Oh, John's going to like take Drogon. Um, I thought that that was a kind of temptation for him that like if he truly wanted the throne, the move would be to approach Drogon and ride him and like take that power and that he was not spurred to do that or not even really tempted to do that, you know, suggests that though he has found within himself the ability to lie, he still has no desire to actually rule. And then, you know, the question of why he survives the rest of it, it's like semi-explicable to me only because Drogon flew away with the evidence. And so, (laughs) you know, presumably the only reason anyone fucking knows what happens is because John told them because he admitted it. And I can imagine a circumstance under which John, you know, walks into a cell, closes the door and then it's like, hey, guys, here's what here's what went down. Right, where they're like so baffled by the whole situation that they're like stymied from a procedural standpoint and don't just murder him. I guess, I guess my the question, like, we, we, you know, the time jump, I think, is a really fascinating thing. And, but part of what it lets them yada yada through, which maybe is like, what the heck is going on in King's Landing in the month, in that right. month between, like, who is mm-hmm. running it while we're waiting yeah. for all of these people? to show up is, is Sir Davos running it? And that's why they haven't tried John. Like, it seems like there's an occupying army with a general in gray worm who like controls all the use of force in that city. Like I just sort of, part of me was very perplexed once we got to the one month jump about, um, I feel like it lets them kind of yada yada through a bunch of stuff. And one of them mm. for me was like how John lived that long. Cause I presumably if gray worm was in charge, neither he nor Tyrion would make it to that meeting. Mm. Right. It sort of implies that gray worm like has something invested in the legal system of Westeros or something like that. Gray worm wants whatever happens to John and Tyrion to happen with the consent and knowledge of the other Lords, which doesn't seem I don't, like, I don't get that from Grey Worm. Or, or the Grey Worm psychology. I yeah. mean, early on in the show, he's like a robot, right? It's like he does whatever mm-hmm. he's commanded to do. And so absent a yeah. commander, he can't do anything. I mean, that, that, that would be the other okay. thing. Except at the end of the episode, yeah. he's totally fine to be like, actually, I'm just going to take all these people on a boat and go to Naxos. Well, we'll, we'll yeah. get to that. Yeah. Yeah, I sort of got the impression that maybe he just like shorted out a little. Like he he has been <laughs> right. following the commands of his queen. There is no queen, so there are no commands to follow. So now what? 
he is filled with rage, but he will not act on that rage in the absence of a command from the person who who commands him. Right. Yeah, I buy it. All right. So, oh, and as to the question of who's ruling King's Landing, like the show sort of does itself a favor here. No one in King's Landing is starving to death because they've all been burned to a crisp. Um, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> we flash forward a couple weeks later, um, maybe a month later, to the big summit to determine the fate of Westeros. By far, the just the silliest scene maybe in this entire <laughs> show. I just loved it. Um, so the Starks are there, and Edmure Tully is there, and Robin Aaron is there, and he's hot now. Could you guys believe that? Uh, right. Everything yeah. was completely incredible. There was a water bottle there. Um, so yes, the speech you refer to, Isaac, a Tyrion speech about stories being the most powerful force in the world. Like, give me a fucking break. But <laughs> this scene also gave us like the gift of Samwell inventing democracy <laughs> and then getting laughed off the stage. <laughs> and that was great. Come on. That was completely great. I think it's worth saying there is just an abrupt tonal shift in the second half, which um, oh, yeah. is so, I mean, I have to feel like maybe this is giving them more, more credit than they deserve. I don't know, but I feel like it has to be intentional that suddenly they're like, also there's going to be goofy slapstick humor. Tobias Menzies, may the seven give him oh my God. blessing upon blessing for his incredible speech on his own behalf for why he should be king uh, and then knocking his sword against the thing. Like, like there's just this weird thing where it's like now, now it's goofy, you know, but there's a darkness behind that goofiness in, in, in the, the people laughing away, the democracy thing. I did have a moment where yeah. I was like, God, if they agree to democracy, I will actually be angry because it's just so not the world of this show. So I was happy that he got laughed off the stage there. Right. But, yeah. but it is interesting that the move that they eventually make is like a very ginger step toward a slightly more enlightened version of the shit that they've been doing for the last whatever thousand years. Right. Although it's not like they invent parliament. They invent a, a no. an elect. They invent an, a, you know, the, the, there's not even a house of lords. There's an elective, uh, there's an elective monarchy, which actually there's a whole interview I did for one of the episodes of, um, Lend me your ears where one of our guests went into this very long conversation about digression about why elective monarchies don't work because they're they're actually Ooh. less stable because if you can just have the king killed, then you can run an election to be the next king without having oh. to be related to them. And so he he told I forget which almost king of Scotland this was who was like being transported to his coronation where there was a party waiting to assassinate him uh, <laughs> and they failed to do so because parties representing another lord assassinated him on the way. Like, it just gets really stabby. Uh, an elective monarchy absent any other institutions gets really stabby pretty quickly. Well, I'm not making, like, a lot of bets about the future of Westeros, but right. hey. Yeah. So just to be clear, though, the, 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 part, the people that are going to be electing the king in this situation are still going to come from houses. So there is a genetic oh, yeah. component. Right. There's still, still feudalism. Yeah. Okay. It's, just a, it's not as, like, pure of a genetic leadership situation, but it still is to some degree. Well, yeah. and there's also this sense that, like, the the idea of lordship has been slightly expanded, right, to include, I guess maybe this is always the way it was in Westeros, but, like, Bronn and Gendry up there on that yeah. stage are, like, that's like, a, that's, like, a big change. And, you know, Sarah Brienne, <laughs> that's a big change. And all those things are little and somewhat, you know, they don't represent a huge shift in society, but we are meant to believe that... Uh, that like things are creeping a little bit toward a kind of modernity that we can appreciate yeah. and, and approve of. Definitely, definitely, yes. Yeah, and just even the very fact that Sam brings up, like if, I don't know, I feel like there's some implication that, hey, this is like a little bit of a conversation here and may grow in the future if Sam, you know, teaches future maesters about the idea, you know, like there's some kind of inkling that, possibly this might be a couple hundred years down the line, something that they try if they survive. What do you, what do you guys think of King Bran the Broken? I like that Sansa oh. was like, you know, you know, he can't do it with a lady, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, does that mean, I mean, there is this interesting possibility held out there that that means that the the future, whoever is elected ruler in the future will also continue being the three-eyed raven, which I think is kind of mm-hmm. crazy that like the, the, the ruler becomes this actual like mystical, d- mystical, somewhat divine figure. Brand did not seem like someone who didn't want to be king in that scene. Do you know what I mean? There's that scene where yeah. they're like, he doesn't want to be king. And Brand's like, actually, it's why I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> um, I combed my hair. Yeah, I got I got this ball cut and everything. Um, but I, I don't, I, yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, the truth of the matter is he's probably going to be like warging into various time frames and Tyrion's really going to be running things, right? Right. I guess the question is more like, you know, who cares about whether it's King Bran the Broken? Like they had to choose someone to be king and they chose him and it's different from other kings and that's interesting. Do you guys feel like the show made you interested enough in Bran to f- for to for this to feel satisfying? No, <laughs> I guess I just don't understand what he wants. I don't still Bran. I mean, you mean you know whether it's, yeah whether or not he wants to be king. Like I don't know what like is he good and therefore it is good to have a king that has the power to ward into crows and go see what's happening or you know, travel to different time frames and see how things happen. Or maybe I've missed things, but I, in my mind, up even up until this last episode, he was sort of like a nebulous figure who may or may not be on the side of the people that we enjoy and like in the show, which, I mean, maybe part of the point of that is that they, you know, it's not the kind of show where people are one thing or another, but I just don't know what to think. I don't know whether to be optimistic about it or not, because I don't know what he wants. I always felt like Bram... Bram was like the Dr. Manhattan from Watchmen of, of Game of Thrones and that because he knew ever like his total knowledge had rendered him so remote that he actually wouldn't intervene in anything because he just actually doesn't care um, was sort right. of where I thought they were going yeah. with him. Um, I feel like the actual again, there's this sort of like what they're doing versus the execution of a thing. The actual idea that what they need is just someone they can all unite behind so that they will stop killing each other, right? And then the invention of a mechanism of succession that like has stands a better chance of working than the one they've had before. Like that's pretty great. Do you know what I mean? Do I think Mm -hmm. like, did they sell it to me by like, uh, you know, the kind of musical theater, we tell the story ending, uh, uh, for that, for that plot that it's like, you know, what, what matters is we have the best story and he has the best story and that's why he should be like that. They did not sell me on that. Do you know what I mean? But the actual idea behind the story beat of like, you just have to pick someone who's not going to cause everyone to kill each other. I'm totally on board with that. And ultimately, like with this show, I'm not actually sure I cared that much who sat on the Iron Throne at the end. Now that I think back on it, it's like that's not really why I watched week to week necessarily. You know, like I was invested in the characters and in the world and this sort of relationship between real politic and mythology and and Shakespeare and, you know, all that stuff. And I I was never that super invested in like the throne felt kind of MacGuffin-y to me almost. For most the, show the show has anyway. always made the case mm-hmm. that the person on the throne matters way less than all the people who are backing, supporting, and undermining that person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the idea that the you know that whoever is on the throne at the end is what is actually what the show is about seems like bananas to me. And I feel like the show actually reinforces that immediately after the scene in the small council scene, where Bran is not right. actually doing much in the day to day. Right. Right. But in fact, all the people. All the people who are doing things in that scene just happen to be characters we ended up really liking throughout the series. Not major (laughs) characters, but like the minor characters who became everyone's favorites. Like, it's not an accident, I don't think, that they are the ones placed around that table, that we get to see them bantering one last time, but that also they have a specific goal, which is like to make things better. Uh, Mm -hmm. That seemed notable to me and interesting. I agree. And of course, Sam, we have Sam presenting um, A Song of Ice and Fire, the book, uh, to Tyrion. Uh, to me, that was that was maybe the most laughable part of this episode because there was no – he never said anything about how uh, the Maester hadn't written the end yet, but they're really hoping he's going to wrap it up soon, but no one's quite sure. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I got I I got nothing on that. I was just like, wow, you're really like. I mean, the ending of the show does become to try to defend it for a second. Uh, as yeah. goofy as it is, 
a referendum on storytelling, right? Which uh, right. is a thing writers love to do at the end of or in the follow-up to major a major work. They often make it about storytelling, right? And I thought the best iteration of that was Brienne's dishonest recounting of Jamie's life or yeah. shall we say slant and then Tyrion learning mm-hmm. he's not in the book right like th- yeah. th- this idea that these stories are manufactured and they serve specific mythological purposes and they serve ideological purposes and they're not about the truth of what happened i think is something that's actually very close to the spirit of the books, which is why I don't mind stuff like Jon Snow didn't turn out to be the prince who was promised and this mythological, mystical, you know, figure who say, you know, all that stuff that he's like the real world version of that who will then be mythologized later. Like, like that Mm -hmm. stuff I really liked. The actual goofy prop, you know, Song of Ice and Fire book, it's called the same thing as the show. Um, uh-huh. uh, we're still awaiting two volumes of it. S- sequence is, is silly, but I think what what they're actually doing about sort of storytelling and mythologizing in those two little bits, I ap- I appreciated. So I want to finish up our conversation by sort of going through the other three Stark kids. The the show sort of ends on a montage of these, not even Bran the King, but the other three Starks who we have sort of loved the most throughout the show. Um, And as we see them go their separate ways, let's start with Arya. So Arya is left without a lot to do in this episode. Um, She doesn't even have her cool white horse anymore. But at the end, (laughs) she's sitting there up on that stage. She's arguing on behalf of the North, like sort of fostering and demonstrating the the sort of return to humanity that I thought the previous episode represented for her. And then she makes a decision to go off on an adventure of her own, right? To see what's west of Westeros. What do you guys think of Arya's finale and, and where she is going? We didn't even get another Arya Gendry moment. <laughs> it's true. She doesn't give a shit about Gendry. No. But, he, but he's, he's so hot. It seemed, that actually seemed extremely realistic to me. <laughs> I mean, it's another thing where it's like, I mean, that makes sense to me as part of her character. It's, she's already done so much stuff that, you know, a girl, a woman in Westeros doesn't do. And it makes sense to me that she would want to go see what else there was. Now, does that, like, reinscribe colonialist ideas about exploration? Maybe. Um, you know, that, that 30 like she's years She's the Christopher Columbus of Westeros? Yeah, we're going to see Arya, like, set up in some palace with, like, a bunch of oppressed indigenous people around her. I don't know. <laughs> cut, um, cut to Arya yeah. on a palanquin being, yeah, you know, carried awesome. over a, a, yeah. Exactly. Arya gives the entire population of, like, whatever country that is grayscale. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's all the stuff that is sort of, like, you know, the flip side, the submerged idea behind exploration or whatever, but... You know, for for these purposes, it makes sense for her character, I would think. Yeah, I mean, one thing I really liked about this season is this idea of Arya reclaiming her humanity. And I know, like, a yeah. lot of people mm-hmm. seemed really pissed that she doesn't wear any faces in these last six episodes, for example. Yeah. And to me, it's like, right, because if she becomes, f- like, the whole idea of being faceless is you have no self, right? Like, you can, w- part of the thing about wearing the face is that you're losing your own. And that's how you're able to, you know, do all of these things. And so this idea in this season that she actually wouldn't ever do that in part because she's regaining who she is and what she really cares about um, while still remaining someone who had had all of those other past experiences and have been transformed by them I think is actually one of the more successful things they did this whole season I totally agree Um, absolutely agree and so she returns to this kind of childhood dream of, of adventure, right. While still being the person she's become as an adult, I thought that was really great. There is also nothing left for her to do on Westeros. Like, right. You know, she saved the world. Like what else does she, she she could sort of do whatever she wants. Uh, so the fact that she would be sort of like a thrill seeking high seas adventurer, I think is a great, very satisfying way for her to go out. Great spinoff idea Um, as she heads west to see that what's west of Westeros is, in fact, Westworld. Um, All right. So Sansa, um, Sansa is the queen of the north. I found this 
you know, a simple but very satisfying ending for her. It's not a surprising ending. She has assumed yeah. this power and prestige and has be already she has already turned into this person. Her transformation yeah. happened before and it has always been a, a real joy to watch. Um, so I just found that like simply great. That's exactly what I wanted for Sansa. Yes, I cried. Yeah, I've, I've always been Team Sansa. So, you know, it, yeah. and, and that she secures the North without a fight. Yeah. Right. That yeah. she, that she, I mean, it's not like the North hasn't been participating in these fights, but it's like rather than rip the kingdom apart with another civil war, she figures out this diplomatic solution. Like she is actually mm-hmm. the genius ruler of this show um, right. and clearly has been for some time. And so, you know, that she finally secures the North's independence. I, I, I found that quite moving. I did like that at that council meeting or at the, um, like the summit, everyone else was like, sure, he can be our king. And then she went last and was like, well, now we're going to be our own kingdom. And I sort of expected everyone else to be like, oh, wait, is that, that's an option? <laughs> can we do that? Yeah. Yeah. Hold on a minute. Yeah. E- Edmure Tully's like, on second thought, I'd like independence yeah, yeah. too. Right. <laughs> and then sit he, down. <laughs> sit down, Edmer. Sit down, sit down. Uncle, please. And then we have John heading north. And so I think a question a lot of people have been asking is he's he is sentenced to j- rejoin the Night's Watch, which is the sentence that is that Grey Worm accepts in lieu of his uh, execution. But then he doesn't stop at Castle Black, right? He keeps on heading north with the wildlings. Yeah. I read this at first is that he was just their escort as they headed back to their ancestral home uh, uh, north of the wall. But you can read it another way. You can read it that he's leaving forever. How did you guys read it? I read it as him escorting them. And then I had a long conversation with my wife after the episode, and she convinced me it was the other other way. I, I think wow. that shot of the gate closing sure is final seeming. Yeah. You know, as he stares and, and the screen goes to black, that really sure feels like he's not coming back. At the same time, that is a dramatically different John. That means that after yeah. assassinating Danny, he has become someone who does not actually respect his oaths anymore, right? Because he's now a deserter. And that seems a little inconsistent with the John we know. I also will say just from a consistency standpoint, and maybe y'all have some ideas about this, like there's still a gate, there's still a wall, yeah. there's still, weren't the Wildings given land to settle in the North? Like the wild, they've made peace with the Wildings. Why are they going up there? Like, like there's a lot about that stuff that I was like, huh? Like I understand for, to make it feel like an ending, why this is all happening. But like, I was trying to review the last couple seasons of stuff that went on with the Wildings. And there, I was just left with a lot of questions about that section. There's still a gate. Cause the section that they, that the dragon destroyed was like, further east i thought no no i meant there's still a gate in the sense of like they still close it and open it when there's no threat oh, right. to them anymore because oh, the why, why is made there peace a wall right, the yeah because they've yeah because yeah. they've made yeah. peace with the wildings now so like why they've given the wildings land the presumably you want to be further south during winter anyway like not, I, if, there's just not a, if you're tormund <laughs> my assumption yeah. was just that they were like we have all these big fur coats we're hot all the fucking time in the north we yeah. want to go up further north that that may very and, well like, be their true. Whole, their whole culture was built around. I mean, you know, this is me filling in the in the blanks with my mind. But if your whole culture is built around like this kind of nomadic, tribalish existence, and then you know, it's a big shift to be like we're going to farmland and be part of, you know, Sansa will be our ruler or whatever. Right. Right. We're, um, we we think yeah. it'd be better to be feudal vassals, but definitely it's not. Right. 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 So then, yeah. Yeah. you know, not not to ask. Uh, too many silly world building questions so it's then it's like the north belongs to sansa but north of the wall belongs to the wildings there's some just to try to fill in the gaps there's some agreement worked out and then john do you do you, rebecca did you read it as john leaving permanently or is escorting them um no i thought he was just escorting them but that's because i i don't know like I, there was a the scene where he you know he enters i can't remember the name of the castle where the um the night's watch is but that he, he sort of surveys the yard Oh, yeah, Castle Black, of course. Um, he surveys the yard where everyone is assembled to greet him, and he has this face on of, like, oh, my God, not this grim place <laughs> where, like, I was killed and these other horrible things happened, and it was just so dreary and horrible and blah, blah, blah. So in, in some ways, the fact that he sort of has that encounter with the reality of Castle Black and seems to be in this place of, like, oh, my God, this is, I can't do this again. That would seem to serve the argument that, yeah, he's leaving. 
But on the other hand, I totally agree that I can't see John doing that. There's no other who else would be in charge of the Night's Watch. Like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that the Night's Watch even needs to exist anymore, as you guys said. But for John to make that decision by himself without saying it out loud or talking to anyone about it and just leave doesn't seem like him. Well, it's interesting that the Night's Watch... The Night's Watch still needs to exist because they need an institution that can deal with outcasts without killing them, which is the argument Tyrion makes, which I actually thought was really fascinating. It's like, right, you've had this terrible civil war that's destroyed everything, and now you need some institutions. Like, you have to rebuild some institutions. You have to build some new ones. You, like, something has to be done to, like, mitigate the use of force in your society. And so, in a weird way, the Night's Watch is, like, make work now. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Right. And the purpose it serves... Other than the internal purpose, the purpose it serves for Westeros, the external purpose it serves is it's still like the link and connection and negotiating body in Westeros's dealings with the wildlings. And so the notion that John uh, yeah. would accompany the wildlings back up north to keep tabs on them, see where they end up, make sure that the relationship with that group remains strong seems like not out of character for someone yeah. who is intending to remain in the Night's Watch. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Have I convinced you contra your wife now? Am uh, I, yeah. I don't know. Is I don't know what I, I, I feel like. I feel like John, when Tyrion's talking to him, I just don't know whose side <laughs> I'm on or what I even believe anymore. How do you know what's right, Dan? Dan, how do you know what's right? I know what's good, Isaac. I know what's good. But yeah. what if other people disagree with you about what's good, Dan? <laughs> then I then I destroy them. Uh, all right. So uh, let's... Uh, we have a big judgment to make, guys. We must sit in judgment on eight seasons of this show. Oh, my and God. determine once and for all, <laughs> who was the worst person in Westeros? Oh. You're the worst shit in the Seven Kingdoms. There's plenty worse than me. It's a big question. Now, uh, Now, in our Slate column, I believe, this week, they decided on Benioff and Weiss because everyone was very pissed off about the episode. I'm not convinced it's Benioff and Weiss. I'm not convinced it's George R.R. <laughs> R. Martin. Like, there are a lot of problems with the story, but he still created something that a lot of people love the hell out of. Yeah. The Night King is dead. Uh, mm. Cersei's dead. Uh, Grey Worm is in Nath, Narth, the Isle of Nath. I can't remember. Yeah, I called it Naxos accidentally, but you're right. It's Narth, yeah. Yeah. He's just chilling on Narth. I have maybe a revolutionary proposal. Whoa. Which is, I would like to change the way we do things. I'd like to break the wheel of this podcast. I would like to propose that this time I want to hear who's the best person in Westeros. We have a generally upbeat ending. Uh, We have a show that ended in a way that I found quite satisfying. We have an outlook that is, if not sunny, at least balmy for Westeros in general. Who's your best person in Westeros? Who after eight seasons ended up being your favorite person in this show? We can take a pause as you, as is your brains explode. Oh, I, I don't, I don't need any time to, to figure that out. It's always been Sansa. So it hasn't always been Sansa. I mean, she starts out as kind of a brat, but Sansa is, I think, you know, the person who combines uh, leadership skills with an actual moral compass. I think the show makes a pretty good case for Sansa being uh, the best person in Westeros. Rebecca. Yeah, that aside, I might say Davos. Davos you know, is so great. He's just, yeah, Davos is so great. I mean, he just is like, well, has he ever done anything that made you be like, but what is right and what is wrong? Like, no, he just always does the right thing. Well, he lets um, Stannis burn his daughter. Oh, that's true, I guess. But he was really <laughs> mad about it. He was really mad. He was he was <laughs> as angry as we were. Yep. Yeah. He's a really good, uh, you know, audience proxy in a lot of ways. And, he, you know, he came from humble origins, and, it, you know, he's worked his way up. He's got that little bag of finger bones. Right. Yep. My secret yep. spinoff that I want out of Game of Thrones is like Young Davos. That's what I really want. Yeah. The Adventures of Young I'd Davos. Watch I yeah, I'd, watch, watch, I'd watch that. Well, what do you think, Dan? My best person in Westeros is Tyrion. You know, even though yeah. he often was the worst person in Westeros, like by design and by circumstance. But I really love, you know, the... The show, in a lot of ways, was making a concerted argument, especially in this last season, about how difficult it is to escape 
the person who your birth and circumstances and trauma turns you into, right? Like yeah. one, one of the reasons that Arya's story was so satisfying uh, was that she's one of the few characters who does escape that. She escapes it only at the last minute when a character who can escape that, the hound, like reminds her of what she can she could transform into if she doesn't escape it. And so seeing a character like Tyrion, who was always presented to us not only as like dissolute and whoring and hated mm-hmm. and but also as believing himself to be the most clever person there is and believing that no one else can outthink him. Watching him come to this realization in these last few episodes that he's wrong like almost all the time. Other people (laughs) viewing this show, I think, found that frustrating and viewed that as a kind of betrayal of the character, but I viewed it as a kind of growth of the character, and it really paid off, I thought, in that big scene, you know, in in the summit in which he is asked once again to be hand of the king, and he doesn't want to do it because he strongly believes himself to be wrong for the role. He understands finally how wrong he often is and how clever he isn't and the ways that his cleverness itself has been a kind of trap that he's fallen into again and again. I think that's also a choice that's very in line with the books and with the sort of spirit of what the books are doing. That's like, Oh, the character you think is always a genius. Actually, they're going to fuck up all the time, you know? And then they're going to have to figure out what to do about that is, is very true to kind of what's going on in this story thematically. And to a show that has always been about, as I said before, the people behind the throne, like the, the guy who's always been the ultimate guy behind the throne, who's been on both sides of that equation, right? Who's been the schemer and the usurper, who's been the, the planner and the advisor. And we got to see him do both of these things in this episode. It made me very happy that this final episode was so Tyrion-centric, that it gave Peter Dinklage so many things to do, mm-hmm. and that we got to see both sides of that character. We got to see him literally scheme to murder a queen, and we got to see him like use his sort of organizational talents and brain to really think about what the future of Westeros looks like. And like that scene of him straightening out chairs the very optimistically, yeah. like it was the first day of school all over again. Like, I, I like that a lot. And so Tyrion's my best person in Westeros. I just really liked him. I love that performance. I love that character. I love the arc that he had sort of against all odds. Uh, and I think that the way that that story played out surprisingly is one of the things that the show did really, really well. I agree. I agree. All right. Thank you so much for joining me for our final, we did it. We did final, it. final <laughs> Game of Thrones podcast. We made it. We survived the burning of King's Landing. <laughs> we never succumbed to grayscale. Uh, we were not drowned by the drowned god. We didn't freeze. We weren't turned into a white. We made it. We made it to the end. Congratulations to all of us. And congratulations to you, Slate Plus listeners. Thank you so much for being members of Slate Plus. Uh, It means a lot to Slate that you uh, pony up the way that you do, uh, and it helps us do the work that we do. We've been very pleased to bring you this podcast for the last X number of seasons. I can't even remember how many it's been, but we really thank you for listening. So long. See you for whatever the next big thing is.